I'm Scott Dworkin, and you're listening to The Dworkin Report. My guest today is Gene Guerrero, who's an investigative journalist for NPR, PBS NewsHour, and the author of Hatemonger, a new book coming out tomorrow about Stephen Miller. Ever wonder where Donald Trump's glory imagery about Latinos, immigrants, and refugees comes from? Gene's new book explains it all. Its full title is Hatemonger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda. And she took the approach of developing a deep biography of the advisor to understand his motivations, which have become ever more influential over time within the White House. It was initially her reporting on the Trump administration's family separation policy at the border led her to learn that it wasn't about law and order, because it was applied to refugees arriving legally in America, and that, in turn, piqued her interest in White House senior advisor Stephen Miller. In the run-up to her new book launch, she's been releasing new reports in the Daily Beast and The Nation, explaining both how Stephen Miller is exploiting the COVID-19 crisis and how it was his connections to federal law enforcement unions in 2016 that helped him sway national immigration policy from his prior status of having chronic problems both parties wanted to fix into a dystopian nightmare used as a racist cudgel by a sitting occupant of the Oval Office. Take a listen. I'm here with investigative reporter for NPR and PBS NewsHour, Gene Guerrero, who is the author of the new book, Hatemonger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda, and it's coming out tomorrow on August 11th. We got an advanced copy, and I think what she has to say will really explain what you're seeing from Trump every day because of Miller's influence. Gene, thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Hey, well, you know, it's the same. Like I say, great with you know the pause, and it's like well, as good as we can do. You know, given exactly circumstances and everything. Obviously, yeah, this is an important book given the time because it's one of the biggest voices to, to, to the uh, supposed president of the United States. And and I'd like to start by asking, what inspired you to write? a book about Stephen Miller's influence over Donald Trump and, by extension, the White House, which directs the entire federal government. Well, I had been covering family separation crisis. I'd been covering immigration from day one of the Trump administration, but it was during the family separation crisis that I really started to turn towards Stephen Miller and, and wanting to understand who he was and what was motivating him. And that was largely because you know, I was interviewing parents whose children had been torn from their arms after presenting legally at ports of entry and uh, who hadn't broken any laws, didn't have any criminal records, and, and had been separated. In one case, I spoke to an El Salvador, uh, a father from El Salvador who had a one-year-old, and he was separated from him for eight months. And the White House, you know, the Secretary of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, of the time, she was saying that this policy, this practice of family separation was about law and order, that it was about national security, that they were only separating people who had broken the law. But I was on the ground reporting from the busiest border crossing in the country, and I knew that that was not the case, that they were also separating families who had done things the legal way. And for me, that raised the question, if, if this isn't about law and order, then what is it about? And that's what led me to turn to Stephen Miller and try to understand the man who was crafting these policies and, and what his motivations were. And when I realized that he had grown up in Southern California during the 90s, during the same time that I grew up here, 
I became all the more fascinated with tr- with trying to understand his story and, and how how does someone go from you know be, being a descendant of refugees to crafting Trump's harshest rhetoric and policies targeting people fleeing violence and persecution people like his great grandparents. This episode of the Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit DworkinReport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. Right, and and so you had mentioned his ritzy kind of upbringing in Malibu. How, how did Stephen Miller's yeah. upbringing lead him to become an anti-immigrant white nationalist speechwriter and strategist in the Trump White House? Yeah, so Stephen Miller grew up in Santa Monica, California, near the coast, uh, in a very affluent community, a very affluent neighborhood, and and you know he he really starts to express these racist, very contrarian, combative viewpoints as a teenager around the time that his father, who is a real estate investor and who has been described to me as being very similar to Donald Trump, was experiencing a lot of financial difficulties related to legal disputes and bankruptcies that he was tied up with. And and at one point, he he ends up losing a lot of money, and and the family has to move to a slightly less affluent and somewhat more diverse neighborhood of Santa Monica. And that's when you see Stephen Miller start to really, you know, he he starts going to this diverse public high school instead of going to private school like his younger brother later would. And he, he starts going around telling his classmates, his Mexican classmates, to speak English and to go back to their countries if they can't learn the ways of America. He goes to school board meetings to argue against measures to improve racial equity, like just really like expressing a lot of passion and hostility towards uh, his classmates of color uh, in a way that was very, just made people scratch their heads. But, you know, from my conversations with family members and people who knew Stephen Miller at the time, it, it really started out as this way of like just acting out and and trying to trying to get his father's attention during this difficult period in his family life and and also just trying trying to find someone to blame for the difficulties that he was experiencing which is sort of what was happening statewide at the time you ha- you saw governor Pete Wilson of California blaming all of the state's fiscal problems on what he called the invasion at the border there were attacks on bilingual education, attacks on affirmative action, attacks on social services for children of undocumented migrants. And like it may be surprising to people who weren't in California at that time, because California is now, you know, kind of leading the charge against the Trump administration. But at the time there was a lot of anti immigrant hostility and, and scapegoating immigrants for all of the problems in California. And and so Stephen Miller is very much a product of that environment and began to uh, scapegoat and blame uh, his his classmates of color for everything that was going wrong in his life. And it's also around the time that he ends up meeting these far-right cons- media personalities, such as David Horowitz, a former Marxist, who ended up really indoctrinating him in this idea that 
that everything that we hold dear as Americans is a product of white men and that there is no systemic racism against people of color and that the only real racism these days is against white people and that liberals and Muslims and, and you know, other people of color pose an existential threat to that heritage rooted in the white male. And so for me, Stephen Miller is truly a study in radicalization and indoctrination. It is what happens when someone is exposed to a very extreme ideology during a vulnerable period in their life and ends up becoming consumed and supplanted by it. And, and in Stephen Miller's case, ends up the most powerful advisor in the White House. Right. And, and I, I saw a couple of videos of him, I guess, at a graduation ceremony where he's pulled off stage after he said, you know, I'm tired of having to pick up my trash when we have people paid yeah. to do it for us. And, and I'll say and do things what other people won't, that kind of thing. And it was just like I, I cry for help in my mind. But at the same time, it, it's it's like the building of what was to come Stephen Miller. I guess I have a very subjective question. How how would you compare Stephen Miller to Karl Rove, the former White House political director who used to be called uh, Bush's brain? Yeah, that's a great question because I feel like Stephen Miller has often been depicted as sort of this mastermind behind Donald Trump in the same way that Karl Rove was depicted behind Bush. And in some ways, I, I do feel like that depiction is accurate because Stephen Miller is the most powerful advisor in the Trump White House. But in, in other ways, it's, it's a little bit different because I, I don't think that Stephen Miller is like this, this mastermind who's coming up with all of these ideas by himself. I think it's very important to highlight the fact that like what makes Stephen Miller so effective in the White House is actually that he's just very effective at regurgitating other people's talking points, other people's points of views. He has a real talent for mimicry. And the other thing about Stephen Miller is that he's very disciplined and very hardworking and obsessive in a way that other people in the White House are not. So it's not that Stephen Miller has like some exceptional brilliance or, you know, he's just, he, he's, I, would, I wouldn't compare him to Karl Rove in that sense, but he's, but he's definitely because of the fact that he is so obsessed with the immigration issue and the fact, crucially, that he gets Trump in a way that other advisors don't. He gets Trump emotionally. He gets him psychologically. He gets him spiritually. And, and this goes back to his childhood and, and having grown up with a man who has been described to me as being very similar to Trump and Stephen Miller just knowing how to appeal to Trump and, and to stay on his on his good side by being very careful to always cast himself as a devoted vehicle for Trump's agenda rather than, you know, the brains behind it, even though like he he is having a very an outsized influence because Trump is increasingly leaning on Miller, especially during this time of crisis, in order to create distractions around his disastrous response to the coronavirus crisis. So so let's talk about Miller's tactics. I want to know a couple of things. First, what, what rhetorical devices is he using to whip up Trump's base with naked hate? And, and how does he use that to drive endorsements uh, in and outside of the White House? Yeah, so from the very beginning, when Miller first joined the Trump campaign and throughout his time in the White House, he has been behind 
Trump's most incendiary rhetoric, in particular inserting extremely vivid, gory descriptions of the alleged crimes of migrants, everything from talking about you know, how, how MS-13 is slaughtering little girls to, you know, talking about a migrant taking a hammer and crushing a woman's skull and eye sockets with the hammer. So just th- these really morbid details about alleged migrant crimes and inserting them into Trump's speeches and even as early as 2015, putting, it, putting examples of those crimes in Trump's uh, immigration policy plan uh, proposals and like one of the first things that Stephen Miller did when he went to the White House is create an office dedicated to the daily demonization of migrants, issuing press releases about their crimes, including photographs of, of their tattoos. He was very obsessed about like, we got to show these guys tattoos. So really just like this emphasis on creating fear and hatred around migrants and this idea that migrants are, are criminals who come here to do harm to Americans. And, and, and yeah, so he, he's behind that and, and he's also behind the rhetoric that we're now seeing with the demonization of, of liberals and, and progressives and pretty much anyone who opposes Trump. You, you see the characterization of the anti-racist protesters in Portland as anarchists and agitators and talking about the unhinged left-wing mob and far-left fascism. All of that is very much rooted in Stephen Miller and how he was trained from a very young age by David Horowitz and others to use inflammatory, demonizing, vilifying language to incite fear and hatred. Right. And and to what extent has his, I guess it's propaganda, become a, a governing tool, instru- like maybe instructing the tens of thousands of federal agents on how to carry out their duties or, or, mm-hmm. or you know, whatever, whatever they're up to <laughs> conjuring that day. Yeah, I mean, so he basically inverted the power structure at the Department of Homeland Security. Like, you see most of the top position that DHS currently vacant or held by people in acting capacity, essentially making them puppets of, of Miller and Trump. So you see Act, Acting Secretary Chad Wolf now regurgitating the most inflammatory rhetoric of Stephen Miller talking about the lawless mobs who want to tear down America's heritage and basically like it, it just it goes back to Stephen Miller's day one in the administration where he was working deliberately to undermine the hierarchy and deliberative policy process at DHS which is supposed to protect Americans from a broad range of homeland security threats from terrorism to cyber warfare to pandemics and has become hyper focused on 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 issues of civil immigration so targeting families targeting asylum seekers t- targeting refugees and when you look at the entirety of Stephen Miller's policies it really has been hyper focused on targeting people who are fleeing violence asylum seekers and refugees you know slashing refugee admissions to a new historic low every year completely obliterating the asylum system at the U.S.-Mexico border, suspending access to green cards and temporary protected status, all of, all of these measures that are very much disproportionately affecting people who have broken no laws and who, I mean, with the exception being in some cases the misdemeanor of illegal entry 
with the zero tolerance policy, for example. But I just think that's important to point out because Trump is always talking about how this is a, a national security issue, that this is about legal versus illegal. But for Miller, like he has always been more focused on legal immigration because for him, it's not about national security. For him, this is about this is about skin color. It's about race. It's about culture. It's about demographics. And he has been taught over the course of his life to launder racist and white nationalist and white supremacist ideas through the language of heritage and through the language of economics and through the language of national security in order to make it palatable to the mainstream. That sets up my next question. Uh, Last month, you wrote about Stephen Miller's attack on one million foreign students trying to use them as a leverage to force colleges and universities to open during the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. And Daily Beast filed it under the cruelty is the point, quote unquote. Uh, why is Trump's brain or or Mr. Miller strategically attacking vulnerable college students in the middle of a national emergency? Yeah, I mean, for for Stephen Miller, like he he has always been hyper focused on on young migrants. I've noticed like he's he he has disproportionately affected mi- migrant minors, and and for me, like there's a real. From my conversations with with people who who knew him when he was a teenager, like there's a real echo between his obsession as a teenager with attacking his his brown classmates and his obsession now as a, as a grown man and attacking you know brown teenagers. And it, it's it's because he was indoctrinated in the belief that that you need a mostly Euro American, mostly white. American culture in order to have the, the, in order to protect the principles that we hold dear as Americans. He was taught because he read, he was reading white nationalist and white supremacist literature that too many brown people in society pose an existential threat, that, that brown people, brown and black people can't fully assimilate, that they don't have the same, you know, values that white Americans do, and therefore they need to be kept out of the country. And so his his laser focus on the civil immigration issue comes from white nationalist ideas that you need to pause all legal immigration into this country, particularly from brown and from mostly brown and black countries, because for them, you know, it poses an existential threat, which is, you know, a complete fantasy and delusion. But it's something that Stephen Miller was indoctrinated to believe from a very young age. And, And so he... He, he targets, you know, people who have broken no laws and who contribute to the richness and diversity of this culture, thinking that he's saving America the way that his mentor, David Horowitz, told him from the time he was a teenager that he needed to save America from all of these brown people. Right. It's a, that's a very tough way to live, I would assume, to be that jaded and, and that pessimistic in regards to just people painting them as one broad spectrum for just being a skin color or being from one country that just seems to me plain and plain ignorance i guess you know it's just right it doesn't well especially when you look go ahead especially when you look at just the fact that Stephen miller is is it's jewish and is the descendant of refugees and you know, you look at his his grandmother on his mother's side, Ruth. She spent her retirement gathering the family history into this into this document that she addressed specifically to her grandchildren in order to t- to tell them, like, 
it, it, how important it was to remember the value of people who come to this country in nothing but their rags and, and with, with no knowledge of the English language. And it's a lesson that her grandson, you know, directly assaults or, or, or completely disregards. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, it's mind boggling when you realize where Stephen Miller's family comes from and how, how valuable they, they always held immigrants and immigration to be to this country. Do you think that uh, Miller was upset about the DACA decision? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I mean, he was, I mean, Trump initially didn't want, he, he, he was a little, you could tell he, that Trump was a little hesitant about revoking, uh, writing that um, memo to, to, to revoke DACA. You know, he tweeted out like a day or two after signing it that, do we really want to keep, you know, these young people, uh, do we really want to get rid of these young people in our country? And but it was really it was Stephen Miller who was pushing him in that direction. And that's one of the ways that Stephen Miller has actually been able to stick around so long is that Stephen Miller always pushes Trump in the harshest and most aggressive direction. And Trump digs that because whenever he listens to advisors who push him in a more moderate direction, like Jared Kushner, he ends up getting ridiculed and, and pummeled by his base as, as weak which Trump hates to be perceived as weak. So Stephen Miller and Trump have very similar ideas about what it means to be a man. And, and they have the same like toxic notions of masculinity that they perpetuate through, through their policies. Right. And, you know, gender bias in regards to, to male, I, I just want to apologize for all males, especially the white dudes. <laughs> As a white dude, the bad representatives of it, I think white people have had, white sorry, white dudes have had their, rich white dudes specifically have had their chance. It's time for them to, to give it up. What do you think, what what else from your, your new book, uh, Hate Monger, have we not discussed yet that you think our listeners need to know? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to explain that the subtitle, you know, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump and the White Nationalist Agenda this this is a white nationalist agenda that the Trump administration is implementing. And what I try to do in the book is is to connect the dots between what they're doing and the and like where they're pulling it from and and the motivating influences. And so Stephen Miller, like if you look at the immigration policy that he's been implementing, it, it's almost verbatim pulled from a blueprint that was issued for the Trump transition team by, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, which is one of three think tanks that were propped up by John Canton, a eugenicist who believed in population control for non-white people, believed in race-based pseudoscience about the genetic superiority of whites. And he, he propped up these think tanks with the idea that they would help, that they would help make white supremacist ideas palatable through the means to the mainstream by laundering them as Stephen Miller does through the language of economics, heritage and national security. But these are, these are white nationalist policy ideas that, that, that fair, that fair issued and that Stephen Miller implemented in the white house. And I think it's just, it's very important to look at the tree of life and see all of the white nationalist literature and the white supremacist literature that Stephen Miller has been consuming and that has been informing his 
his immigration policies, as well as the rhetoric that Trump is using. Like if you see, look at how Trump is talking about anti-racist protesters as agitators and anarchists, that comes directly, it echoes directly the camp of the saints, which is a white supremacist novel about white genocide that Stephen Miller promoted in 2015 that says that non-white people destroy the white world in large part because they are helped by anti-racists who are anarchists and agitators. So the same language, it's a very eerie parallel. But this is, this is not just about immigration. Like you, if you want to understand the era of polarization that we are living today, the, the division that we are living in America today, you, you need to understand the story of Stephen Miller because this is, it goes far beyond immigration. It's about pitting people against each other, be they Democrats against Republicans, be they, you know, white people against Brown or black people. Like it's, 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 there's a division machine in the white house and that division machine is in Stephen Miller's office. And what, what does, just for our listeners, uh, what does white nationalist mean in context with the book? Cause I know a lot of people make a lot of assumptions about, you know, what that definition would mean, but what, what do you uh, see it to be in regards to, to Stephen Miller? Yeah, the, the, he's trying, he, he, because of the influences that he's had over the course of his life, like he wants America to be a mostly white country. He believes that it needs to be mostly white in order to have, in order to maintain the privileges and ideals that we consider to be American today. Because as a young man, he, he came to believe that all of the things we hold dear, like freedom and equality, that all of these things were created by white men, which is ahistorical, obviously, because it ignores the central role that brown and black people played over the course of American history, and especially in the civil rights movement, to make these once false ideals in our founding documents actually true. But for, but for Stephen Miller, like white nationalism is, is about that. It's about re-engineering the demographics of this country and, and, and trying to, to maintain a white majority with the idea that if, if whites become a minority, that that would, that would be some kind of apocalypse for the United States, which is obviously not the case when you look at California, the state in which he grew up, you know, whites became a minority in California in the nineties, which is part of the reason that there was all this white fear and white backlash and, and talk of like California turning into a third world state, which obviously didn't end up happening. But, but we're seeing that nationally today because, whites are going to become a minority in America by 2050. And, and you just have the same, the same sort of white supremacist ideologies rearing their heads and, and Stephen Miller really playing with the hatred and, and the fears associated with that. What's something we may not know about Mr. Miller that, that might actually surprise us? Well, he, his, his first real girlfriend was Mexican American. She, he dated a Mexican-American woman the first year of his, his time at Duke University. She was a conservative, and, and they broke up after, after, after that year of dating. But, but yeah, I'm, to, I'm told that she didn't want people to know that she was in a relationship with Miller because she was a little bit embarrassed about it and that he was much more interested in her than she was interested in him. And 
I, I just bring that up because it, it, it often, when I do talk to people about it, people are, are very surprised by that. And they wonder if that had some sort of impact in like his, his feelings of hostility towards, towards immigrants. But I mean, he was expressing that hostility prior to meeting this woman. And, and like, if you look at, you know, Stephen Miller and his relationships, like he, he is able to have positive relationships with people of color. Like one of his mentors, Larry Elder is a black, is a black man. And, and Stephen, Stephen Miller doesn't appear to have an issue with people of color when they renounce their unique ethnic roots and histories. Like for him, it's like the real problem is when you have brown or black pride and then he sees that as, as some kind of threat for some reason. And how do you think Stephen Miller will be looked at in the history books, you know, come 10, 20 years from now, his time in the White House? I think Stephen Miller is going to be seen as, as part of, you know, a manifestation of a bipartisan decades-long assault on on immigration that we saw at the border and sort of like the, the logical product of that decades-long bipartisan assault on immigration. There's this idea that, you know, Trump invented the whole anti-immigrant hostility, but when you look at the story of Stephen Miller, you realize that that's, that that's not the case. But I think like, you know, in the future, I don't know what's going to happen in November. I, I really don't. But but I do, I do believe that nationally, like we are going through the same growing pains that California went through in the 90s. And that like, ultimately, you know, when whites become a minority, it's, it's not, the United States is not going to turn into some kind of third world nation. It's just we're going to we're going to become a much more mixed society we're going to become like a, a mestizo nation and there's going to be a lot less tribalism i think because people are going to have more hyphenated identities and greater capacity for identification with multiple groups you know considering themselves to be american but also you know maybe something else white but also something else you know like and there's just going to be a lot less a lot greater capacity for empathy and you know just identification with with different nationalities and different identities and i think that that's something that Stephen miller has always feared because he he's he's been led to believe that multiculturalism poses a threat to to civilization as we know it but as as we know from from the case of california that's just not that's just not the case All right and i guess if if Trump wins, the history books might look at Stephen Miller for the time being as favorable because they probably will mm-hmm. write write them, write their exactly. own history, and they'll do that anyways. Is is there anything new in uh, reporting for the Daily Beast that you want to tell us about or that you're working on that we should watch out for? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be well. So that's going to have already come out. Sorry, there's, there's an excerpt coming out on Friday, but it'll have been coming out. It'll be out by the time you guys run this, right? Um, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just doing more reporting on, I'm, I'm going to be following Stephen Miller as, as the, as the summer and, and the fall unfolds and I'll, I'll be continuing to report for, you know, the Daily Beast and other, other outlets. Yeah. Where can people follow you online? So they can, they can follow me on Twitter at Jean, J-E-A-N-G-U-E-R-R-E. Or they can visit my website at com. The book is Hate Monger, 
Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the white nationalist agenda. Click on it in our episode's notes and buy it right now. Thank you again, Gene Guerrero, for taking the time with me. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I want to thank Gene Guerrero for taking the time. Be sure to check out her book and buy it right now via our episode's notes. Thanks again to our producer, Grant Stern. You can follow him online at Grant Stern. You can visit our website at DworkinReport.com. To learn more about Joe Biden, you can go to MeetTheCandidates2020.com. Make sure to do what you can over the coming weeks because we, we really need to all get out there and vote. And if we all vote, he loses. Have a great week. Have a great day. Have a great hour. Be well. Thanks for listening. Keep resisting. Onward!